Hello, my name's Catherine Kemp and welcome to Trust Exercise, part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. In this episode, we talk to Professor Toby Walsh, who is a leading researcher in artificial intelligence based at UNSW and Data61. He's the author of the book 2062, The World That AI Made, named after the year 2062, in which leading AI experts predict we will have built machines as intelligent as humans. Toby recently received an Australian Laureate Fellowship for a project that aims to understand how to build AI systems that humans can trust. Listen along and find out who should be responsible when AI goes wrong. Why do so many digital personal assistants have female names and female voices? What did George Orwell get wrong? What is Toby doing about robots that can decide who to kill? And why did he change his mind about facial recognition software? Toby, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my great pleasure to be with you. Now, nowadays, you're a professor of artificial intelligence and you've just won this highly prestigious laureate fellowship for your project on how to build AI systems that humans can trust. And we see you regularly on TV and hear you on radio explaining the latest developments in AI. But I wonder if we can start by rewinding a little bit and asking, do you actually remember your first computer and your relationship with your first computer? <laughs> oh, yes, I, I, I do remember my first computer. I was, I was very lucky um, because it was quite a long time ago. Um, before computers were very common, um, but I went to a school that had somehow managed to acquire um, an old computer, an old mainframe computer. They'd been told that if they turned up with a truck, they could take it away for free. Um, and it took over a, a squash court. It was a, a room-sized computer. Um, and a couple of us were given free reign to use this computer. And it was an am amazing discovery. I'd, I'd been an avid reader of science fiction. Um, authors like Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. Um, and now I was given the keys to a device where I could imagine that one day we could build the sorts of intelligent computers and smart robots that I'd been reading about in these fantastical books. Um, and so at a very young age, um, I did actually decide that that's what I wanted to do. And perhaps if I had more imagination than my 11-year-old self, I might have gone on and done some other things. But um, I never had that imagination. And still today, I'm, I'm following, pursuing those dreams. Um, and I think what's exciting, though, is that those dreams are now turning into reality. And, and perhaps the rest of the world is, is waking up to to what um, I realized uh, that those authors had, had filled my mind with was going to be coming true um, sometime very soon. I know you've sometimes said that you've spent the last 30 years trying to build AI, and for most of that time, very few people cared about what you were doing. I think nowadays, a lot of people would picture you spending your days building robots and talking to disembodied female voices but can you give us an idea of what you were doing in those earlier decades when we weren't paying attention and what your work looks like now? Well, it was probably proper that people weren't paying much attention because 
AI was still a very long way away from having a practical impact on our lives. Uh, but since then, there have been a, a number of developments that have fueled the idea that, that we can actually build machines that do useful things. I mean, we're still a long way from matching human intelligence. I still have the immense respect for the human brain. It is um, the most complex system that we have discovered in the universe. Nothing matches its billions of neurons and trillions of connections. But we can build modest amounts of intelligence in machines. Um, and that's been driven by a, a couple of exponentials. We, we hear a lot about how we're living in exponential times. But the, these are true exponentials that, that have train, changed what we can achieve. And one of them is just computing power. Moore's law, the doubling every two years or so of compute power, has meant that things I dreamt about even a decade ago are now technically possible. And not just technically possible on some large mainframe, but actually possible on your, on your, on your smartwatch or your, on your mobile phone. And that we can do things now that uh, we just dreamt about. Uh, the second is the amount of data that we've got. Um, a lot of this AI revolution is being driven by machine learning, that we lead lots of examples of the phenomenon that we're trying to replicate. But we are collecting that data. Our smartphones are collecting all that data. Corporations are waking up to the idea that, that data is one of their most valuable assets. So we're increasingly having that data. And then the third um, the thing that I can claim a little bit of modest credit for is that we've been working uh, hard, uh, diligently on the algorithms um, that run on that uh, ever faster hardware that use uh, ever more data. Um, and we have made some some significant advances and um, perhaps not quite as large as the advances on the hardware on the data, but nevertheless significant advances on the on the accuracy of the algorithms. Um, the efficiency of the algorithms so that we can actually now solve some of those problems. And so um, AI, I think, is, is becoming an almost invisible part of our lives. Every time we ask Siri a question, there's an AI that is understanding our speech, that is trying to come up with a good answer and then reading it back to us. Before we go further, can we get our definitions straight? What is artificial intelligence and what isn't artificial intelligence? Are there common misconceptions about what's included? Well, I think the most common misconception is the, is the one that Hollywood has given given us, that the, the fantastical idea of, of a, a sentient, a conscious machine, a new, norm, normally in a humanoid form with a, with a red glint in its eye with some evil intent to take over the planet. Um, and that isn't something that we're anywhere near uh, making. It's not clear to me if we'll ever build sentience consciousness in machines. Um, but it is a difficult thing to pin down, and it's in some sense it's a movable target. Uh, we, all, many of my colleagues, joke is AI. AI is all the things we can't yet solve with a computer. Um, but uh, but but nevertheless, there there are a number of tasks that, when humans do them, require intelligence that do correspond to artificial intelligence. They're about perceiving the world, about reasoning about the world, and acting in the world. And those are all the things that, that go into our intelligence and all sorts of things that we are starting slowly to build machines to do. You've said that it's estimated that there are only about 10,000 people in the world who, like you, have a PhD in artificial intelligence. So we're relying on the expertise of a vanishingly small percentage of the world's entire population in this area. But I, I'd hazard a guess that most of those people are the same gender and that perhaps many of them have the same skin colour. And the same for a lot of people developing AI even without a PhD. What effect do you think that has on whether the community as a whole can trust 
the AI that is being developed. It is a significant challenge, a significant problem that we face, that there, there isn't a lot of diversity amongst the people at the moment working in artificial intelligence. Um, PwC did estimate, as you said, that there are perhaps only 10,000 people on the planet with a PhD in AI and, and maybe an order of magnitude more people who actually understand the technology and are applying it in practice. And it's, it, it's worth thinking, you know, can there, be, can there have ever been another revolution that's been changing the planet that was driven by such a small cohort of people. And there's plentiful evidence that that, that is not perhaps very healthy, that diverse teams are much better at dealing um, with with these sorts of issues of in inclusion and making sure that bias is properly addressed. And, and with a, unfortunately, there have been a, a number of spectacular fails of that um, that have, have become public as, as to where um, diversity hasn't been present and it certainly would help in, ter in terms of making the technology more inclusive, making sure that that um, everyone is brought along and everyone benefits from it. And we, we, we do sadly have seen plentiful examples of um, algorithms that have been applied that are racist and sexist. Uh, most recently, the last couple of days, we've been seeing that the, the, the algorithm that Twitter uses to to place photographs and in tweets is is racially biased against people with um, dark skin, um, and so yes, it, it it would be good, and there are plentiful efforts that we're that are underway to try and correct those biases. But sadly, at the moment, th those efforts are not having great impact. The there are still about the same number of women entering the field today as there were five years ago. The the, the dial has not moved at all. If you look at the statistics, though, I think it's one thing is very clear that those problems start at an incredibly young age. As soon as children can start and, and their parents can start selecting subjects at school, um, girls tend to select away from these sorts of subjects and, and into other areas. Um, and so it's something that we really have to address at a very young age. I'm actually, um, I have actually been a, a scientist in my local girls' primary school because I worked out if we're going to truly address this problem, we really have to start addressing this problem um, at primary school. We have to really break down the gender stereotypes that, that seem to afflict us from a very young age. It's amazing that you're doing that on an individual level. What, what do you think needs to change in our education policy and the kinds of programs that the government might actually implement that would change that across a nation? I think it's it's there's not a simple fix. There's not one silver bullet that's going to solve this. I think it's going to require coordinated efforts um, across uh, lots of levels. It's going to require um, the media to step in. It's going to require, um, you know, every time you see uh, a Hollywood movie, why is it that it's always uh, a white male person like myself who's the scientist evil or good or, or other? Um, why is it, for example, uh, that uh, smart uh, smartphone assistants, Siri, uh, Alexa, they're always women. There's absolutely no reason that they should be women. Um, in fact, I think, you know, it, 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 that they should be sexless, that we should, we should um, build them with, with voices that, are, that can neither be recognized as men and, men and women. It's, it, it sends entirely the wrong message, I think, um, out to people that women are always waiting, listening to do our beckoning. Um, as they are um, in these voice assistants. And it, there's no reason why um, they should be female voices, and there's no reason why that they should have female names. We could give them sexist names. They could be called Alpha or Omega or whatever you like to call them. 
Um, but I think that's just a ex small example of, of how um, these um, unconscious decisions, I, I doubt that I actually do know the, uh, the people behind Siri, and I'm sure uh, they had no intention to be um, sexist or to perpetuate um, these sorts of genuine stereotypes. But, uh, but as a father of, um, of a young daughter, I feel it's really important that we make sure that this is um, a, a revolution that uh, treats all sexes, all races, all minorities, um, and, and it has the great potential. I mean, it's the irony. These are the very technologies that do have the potential to make our society more inclusive. If we want to include people who are perhaps hard of hearing or limited of vision, these are precisely the technologies that will give those people um, hearing and, and vision. These are precisely the techno technologies that can help us make um, better, um, less biased decisions if we're careful. But it does require us to work very hard at those, at those tasks. I know that Microsoft is reported as saying that one of the reasons Cortana's voice is female is that people said they found the female voice more trustworthy. Um, I've got my doubts about whether that's at base. I think that maybe people have some gender preconceptions that a woman is there to help and do your bidding, while a man with the same information who's giving you the same uh, information and directions might sound like he's telling you what to do with our preconceptions. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right, actually. I think if you, if you trace back many of these decisions, many of them can be traced back to some of the very first um, satellite navigation systems. So when, when they started building things in our cars that would, would navigate and tell us directions to go. And there was a small amount of work, a very limited study that, that suggested that um, men took directions better from women and women were fine with having women giving them directions. And, and that somehow became the norm, the default. And there's almost been no follow-up work to work out whether that was actually true or whether um, and, and what consequences it has by always having female voices. And perhaps reinforcing some of those impressions as we go. I think Google has developed a voice that will do even more for you. I know it can call up a hairdresser and make an appointment. Listening to that voice it's so authentic very few people would realize they're talking to a computer do you think these companies have a duty to include some kind of notice to let people know they're talking to a computer should we have a right to know yes i think we definitely should i've, I've actually um, named this uh, turing's red flag uh, after alan turing who, who's one of the uh, fathers of the field um, and red flag in homage to the red flags that we used to have walking in front of uh, automobiles um, when they were first invented um, because we were worried that they were going to frighten people on horseback. Um, and that we should be warned that um, that this isn't a person and, and especially a product like Google's duplex, which ums and ahs um, and hesitates and pauses just like a human. I mean, what is the purpose of umming and ahhing other than to lull us into a false sense of security? And it, it was very worrying that when Google released this, they didn't put any warnings out. They actually did try to impress us with the fact that it, that it was actually passing as, as, a, as a human. And there, there's plentiful stories from Hollywood about the, the mistakes that can happen if we um, do end up mistaking uh, robots for, for humans. Um, and, and even more troubling, uh, I do know some people in Google, and um, they told me in, in private that 
that management was warned that they should put such a warning in front, but they disregarded the engineers who said, well, perhaps we shouldn't be too deceptive about this. Uh, at the end of the day, the most valuable thing that we have is our time. And if, if machines can waste that time for us, we already waste more of our time, I think, than most of us care sitting in cool waiting systems, uh, navigating through those, those, those menus trees. Um, but if computers could waste even more of that time, I, I do wonder what a, a world's going to be. And then uh, let me just paint a, a most terrible, most terrifying vision, which is we can make those voices sound like anyone. So we can we can make one of these computers now sound like, for example, like Trump. And we now have the technology, and it's only a matter of time, I'm sure, before actually this is turned into practice. We have the technology where we could have Trump or a virtual Trump ring up every voter in the United States and persuade them to vote for him. What a terrifying weapon of mass persuasion that would be. And, and we should perhaps possibly consider um, we should be out, outlawing such uses of technology. And there is already a um, tweet bot, Deep Trump, that is actually being trained to um, Trump to tweet like Trump. I know that's not a particularly tall target to me, Trump tweeting like Trump. But um, it was trained on all his tweets. And you can you can actually look at its output on the web. There's a, a web page which gives you examples, and I think you can even generate for you on the fly a new Trump tweet. Um, and it's actually almost impossible to turn tell it from the real thing. That is a disturbing vision, and it's interesting what you say there that you've got that communication between the engineers and and management about how much the public should be told about the technology that they're dealing with. I know that um, when it comes to data collection uh, via websites and apps, that there seems to be a, a real trend in that, uh, on the one hand, there's the knowledge on the part of the developers and the companies themselves that certain data is being collected, it's being shared with other entities, it's being used for purposes well beyond the service that's being provided. And at the same time, the terms of use and the interfaces are being designed in a way that's meant to not scare the horses. Do you think, what kind of conversations do we need to be having about the extent to which people should have proper information and autonomy um, and rather than having that sacrificed at, uh, for the sake of somebody's business model? Well, this is a, a really important conversation and one where actually I think where we just plainly obviously need more regulation. Europe has led the way with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation Act that's come into force. There is a beginning but not an end of this conversation. I think we need to, we really do need to be protected from the worst excesses of, of business. Um, you know, there, every time you sign up to a new web service, there's a terms of service you have to click on. But you don't really have any choice there. I mean, if you don't agree, you can't select which bits of the service you want. You you just have to deny yourself then using the service. Um, and so it really isn't a matter of choice. Um, I actually think what, what we need is something very simple. We need um, it to be mandated by law that there are four levels of privacy that you get. And then these are, uh, these are uh, level, level zero, which is that we collect no information. Um, Obviously, if they collect no information, then the quality of service may not be quite as good because they can't personalize it to you. 
level one will be that they they collect information to improve the quality of our service level two is that we share such information with sister companies and level level uh, level three is it's public and anything we do we might share with anyone um, and you should be able to uh, see which level you've got and be able to change to that change that level with one click uh, at any time and it has to be retrospective so if they've collected information from you in the past they now have to delete that information and I think then if we had that level that simple level of, of privacy and that simple ability to change what companies kept, kept on us um, then we could hope to actually um, get back our privacy. So then you might have something along the lines of the way Creative Commons licenses are at the moment where we have just a set number of licenses which allow different levels of use and sharing and people don't have to try and reinterpret uh, every single different set of terms. Exactly, exactly. It should be something as simple and straightforward as that that all of us can understand. Uh, and on top, actually, I think an, an, another wrinkle which I would love to see, which is um, a, a timeout, which is that after six months, a year, whatever, whatever we decide is reasonable, that your data has to be deleted. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is that most of these web services could go on, could continue um, without almost impacting the quality of what they do. Um, your preferences a year ago aren't particularly useful to them. They only actually want to know what you what you're interested in buying today. Um, but we would then get back our privacy, and I, I do worry um, that we're going to end up in a world where, well, when I did things when I was 18, you know, I got horrendously drunk and behaved outrageously because I was 18, and that's what you do when you're 18. That's been lost in the midst of times, and I'm thankful for that, that I'm, those useful transgressions have now no longer follow me. But, but young people today, they live on a world in the systems in which those useful transgressions will follow them forever. And will we end up in a world when you're going for an interview uh, in 20 years' time and the interviewee has searched through your, your tweets and your social media and, and has got some embarrassing facts about you that might deny you the job? Um, we all, um, I think, actually deserve a right to, for those things to be forgotten. And it, it, not just uh, having that particular record, but that particular record combined with your purchases over those decades and your um, credit history and all manner of other information that's accumulated from so many sources. I, I think there's another issue that um, often gets raised in the context of AI as, as being um, of deep concern to a lot of people um, that we saw raised, for example, in the Edelman Trust Barometer that was published earlier this year. And that report showed that 53% uh, of people surveyed around the world worry about losing their job due to automation. Do you think this is a big risk? How do you think job losses due to developments in AI will change our lives? This is another really important conversation um, that we should be having. We should, we should be worrying about the impact that AI in particular and automation in general is going to have on the nature of work. Um, and it is going to have a massive impact. Uh, the problem though is that there's huge uncertainty what, what exactly the scale of that impact is. I mean there have been some um, worrying surveys as you mentioned. Um, people are very concerned about it and, and that's something we should respect. 
Um, and there have been some studies done by economists and others that have made some dire predictions. I think the, the granddaddy of many of these studies is a report due to Fran Osborne from the University of Oxford in 2013 that came up with a number, 47% of jobs in the United States at risk of being automated in the next two decades. Uh, what isn't often remarked is actually an ironic fact is that this number, the 47% of jobs at risk, uh, was estimated by a computer program. They used machine learning to come up with this estimate. Um, so the job of uh, predicting the number of jobs to be automated has itself already been automated. Um, there might be there a are... conflict of interest there. And <laughs> uh, uh, one of the jobs that, that actually they considered to be significantly at risk was the job of being an, an economist. Um, so you can understand why economists are so worried about this. Um, but I, I, I certainly, we don't know what the number of jobs at risk. There's certainly, a, the, if you look carefully at the data in these studies, um, there are clearly jobs that they predict that are going to be automated that won't, I can assure you, be automated. They made some predictions like bicycle repair person is going to be automated. Well, bicycle repair people are very lowly paid people, unfortunately. Um, it would take a very expensive robot to automate the job of repairing a bicycle. Um, and I've actually asked around uh, my colleagues all around the world who actually build robots, and none of them, to a, a man and a woman, are building bicycle repair robots. So we're not going to chance upon bicycle repair robots, but I actually have to set out with the task of building them. So I don't see that job being replaced anytime soon. So some of the predictions are probably wrong. But nevertheless, there, there will be a significant disruption. Um, and of course, you can't just look at the jobs that are going to be replaced. You also have to factor in all the other parts of the ecosystem. Uh, what about all the jobs, new jobs that are going to be created? Technology has always made lots of new jobs. The history of, of technology in the last hundred years is that we've invented far more jobs than we've ever destroyed. Um, the world's population is historic high levels. Uh, uh, unemployment until recently was at historical low levels. So we've somehow created lots of jobs that replace those jobs um, out in the fields where most of us worked by jobs in offices and factories. And, and there's going to be plentiful new jobs that we can't even think of today. No one um, 20 years ago was building smartphone apps. No one 20 years ago was a was a social media influencer because we didn't hadn't invented smartphones and social media um, until about 20 years ago. So those jobs have all been invented in the last 20 years to, to, to deal with those new technologies. And so in 20 years time, we'll be doing jobs with technologies that we invent in 10 years time. So it's hard to conceive what those jobs are. But it is clear that there is a significant disruption going about, and it is plausible that, that, that we will, might end up um, with the robots taking a lot more of the sweat and us doing a lot less of the work. And that's something we should be celebrating. I do like to tell people, uh, when I hear that some new job has been automated, I, I normally say, well, th thank heavens, that was by the very nature of its job, a repetitive, dull job. Um, that we probably should never have got humans to do in the first place. And we should now celebrate the fact that we've got machines to do that. But that does, of course, leave the, the challenge of what happens to those people who used to do those jobs. How can we ensure that those people have got um, meaningful things left in their lives and, and, and uh, income to support them? Um, and that does mean, well, maybe we will work a shorter week. We have in the past worked a shorter working week. Um, back um, before the beginning of the Astro Revolution, we worked 60 or 70 hours a week. Now, many of us only work 30 or 40 hours. So we have reduced the amount of time we work. And 
pe- people forget the the weekend was an invention of the industrial revolution there's nothing about the way the earth goes around the sun that requires us to have two days off every seven there's no reason why we couldn't have three days off a week and indeed um, there are interesting studies uh, trials in new zealand and the united kingdom and elsewhere where companies have trialed getting people to work for only four days a week and discovering two really important facts. The first is that people could be just as productive in those four days of work as they were in the five days they used to work. Um, so you can pay them just as much. And, and secondly, and perhaps a little unsurprisingly, people are happier that they spend less time uh, feeding themselves, uh, working to feed themselves and, and clothe themselves and house themselves, and more time doing the things that are important in their lives, spending time with their families, spending time in their communities, spending time um, doing uh, charitable work and, and um, making art and all the other things that, um, that, that give meaning to our lives. Of all of that, of course, is very um, a, a promising outlook for our future. And yet there must be an interim period, mustn't there, that's a, a more concerning in that in thinking of those new kinds of jobs that will be available, it seems unlikely that the out-of-work truck drivers who've been replaced by driverless trucks will be equipped for those kinds of jobs in the short term. Yes, that, I think that really, you've honed in on exactly the, the, the challenging part of this, which is that we can imagine a future in 40 or 50 years' time where the robots are taking more sweat, but how do we get to that future? And how, how do we ensure, as you, as you point out, that the people whose jobs do get replaced, and there will be certain jobs that get completely replaced, like being a, a truck driver, we're going to have autonomous trucks, and that's going to be far cheaper and far safer um, to have the robots doing the driving than humans. In 20 years' time, no one's going to be earning their living driving. That's going to be a thing that machines do. So how do we ensure that the people whose main skin in life used to be driving um, have meaning? And unfortunately, um, that is a, a significant problem because if we look at previous uh, transitions, it's often been the case that those people who were made unemployed never got a job again and they went to retirement being unemployment, unemployed. Um, and so how is it we support people? Um, people who are already out in the workplace whose jobs do get replaced. And that, I think um, that tells us one thing is that this idea of lifelong learning is something that we need to embrace, that we need to ensure that, that people are equipped um, and are reskilling themselves. And how do we support the individual? How, do, how does the corporation support the individual? How do government support the individual through those transitions? What are the appropriate sticks and carrots to ensure, and we're already, this is a problem that is already in, in afflicting us. We saw um, at the beginning of this year, uh, one of our most profitable banks, West Bank, announced that they were going to lay off 6,000 uh, members of staff um, and hire 2,000 new members of staff with the appropriate digital skills. Now, um, Westpac may be may have been the wrong size by 4,000 people. It may needed to be a smaller organization more. Um, but nevertheless, there were 2,000 people who didn't need to be laid off. Um, and that was a failure, a failure of our systems, a failure of Westpac, a failure um, that those 2,000 people were thrown, who didn't need to be thrown out um, uh, on, onto the unemployment queue, were, th- were thrown out of a job. Um, Westpac should have been reskilling its employees the most valuable thing an organization has are its employees 
Um, how did it get to a point where 2,000 of them didn't have the right skills to be moving forward in their jobs? Um, and we, want, we, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen again. We need to make sure um, that people are being uh, reskilled. And clearly, we are going through a transition that's now with the pandemic that's going to be very painful, that is going to require um, a large reorganization of a society, of, of many of our corporations, of the way we do many things. And so it is going to be a very difficult, very challenging time. Our Australian Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, has weighed in on another aspect of AI when he has re repeatedly called for the use of facial recognition technology to be strictly regulated and saying that law enforcement agencies shouldn't be allowed to use it without proper safeguards in place. I earlier this year heard um, Robert Elliott Smith say um, that uh, as another widely recognised expert in AI, that facial recognition software as it currently stands should be banned. Would you agree? <laughs> Interestingly enough, yes, I would agree. And if you'd asked me the same question uh, just even five years ago, I probably wouldn't have agreed. I would have said, well, there are actually significant benefits to face recognition in terms of, uh, as an example, I think the, the poster story of this was uh, a study that was done in New Delhi in India uh, a year or so ago where the, the police went into a number of orphanages around New Delhi using face recognition software and the photographs of, of children that had been uh, separated from their parents. And they were able to reunite nearly 3,000 children um, with their parents. I mean, it's a bit like the movie Lard. It's easy in a big country like, like India to get separated from your parents. And if you're uh, too young to be able to explain uh, where you used to live, um, that might be a, a permanent uh, separation. So a terrible good that was done. But since then, we've seen terrible harms that are being committed. Um, in places like China, the persecution of the Uyghurs using um, being being powered in part by face recognition software. Um, and worryingly, we're see, starting to see those same technologies being rolled out in our public spaces here in Australia. And we see um, the government go about building um, a ominously sounding um, system. It's called the capability where they're going to build a national database of everyone's biometric information and everyone's photograph. Anyone who's got a passport, anyone who's got a driving license will have their data in this database. And, and the ostensible reason for this is for national security. Now, I'm happy enough to see such software being used at our national borders, at our airports and the like. I think most of us uh, understand and can appreciate um, the benefits that that may bring at, at, those, at those pinch points. But to actually use the, this sort of software day to day, to use it um, in our streets, in our shopping centers, um, is, I think, taking us to a, a, a world that actually we already know about. And it's the world that the authors like George Orwell and, and Aldous Huxley have told us about, the world of 1984, um, and a panopticon world where everywhere you go, you're surveilled. And, and the difference, and the, the really crucial difference to understand is that the technology is putting this on steroids. And that's the one thing that, that, that George Orwell didn't in, get right, quite right. It's not Big Brother, it's not people watching people. You can't do that at, at national scale, but you can get computers to watch people. And, and we're starting to see that. And to, uh, to give an idea to your listeners about the, about the capability that we're talking about, 
there was a, a case in in China uh, not so long ago where the police were able to pick out a felon a, a person in a crowd of over 50,000 people in a rock concert using some of this uh, face recognition software um, now human eyes can't do that you can't pick out a person in a crowd of 50,000 people that's not that's not physically possible but a computer can do that and it can do that uh, continuously at scale it can do it 24 7 it can do it on every street corner um, and it is I think we're a, a bit of a boiling frog like problem we've got used to the idea that there are cameras everywhere um, because we've been putting in CCTV everywhere but in the past it was you know there was a lone operator who was watching all these different cameras and we knew it wasn't possible to be surveilled but what would happen was if you know if some crime took place the police would come along and they would collect the tapes and they would examine the tapes and that wasn't that didn't seem to be too harmful there didn't seem to be too much of a problem there we know a crime had been taken place and the police were, were were picking up the pieces and hopefully finding the person responsible but now we can put algorithms behind those cameras. We can actually surveil people in real time. Um, and that completely changes the equation. That, that means that we can, we can surveil people um, across a nation. And that really does take us to a, a frightening world, a world where it's not possible to, to um, dissent. Um, it used to be if you went out in a crowd and protested about, I don't know what, Black Lives Matter or, or the climate emergency, all the things that many of us are passionate about, you were essentially anonymous. Well, now you're not anonymous. Now you can be picked out. Now you can be found who you are. And that is an incredibly important human right, our ability to protest against the status quo. Um, that is the, those protests are the things that have given uh, women the right to vote, that's given um, given Aboriginal people voice in this our community, it's given um, changed the world for better in the past. The ability to protest um, and move things forwards. And if we end up in a world where we are fearful for protesting, um, and, and it's worth pointing out that it's not just the fact that you are um, being prosecuted and persecuted for for protesting. It's the thought that you're being um, surveilled that changes it. The fact that you know that people uh, can identify you are changes what you do, even if they aren't actually doing that. The complexity of AI is, of course, another issue, and the fact that for even for those who create it, uh, they may not be able to explain its workings. Frank Pasquale, the author of Black Box Society, has said transactions that are too complex to explain to outsiders may well be too complex to be allowed to exist. Do you agree with that? Actually, no, I don't agree. I think transparency is an important property and where it's possible we should be demanding it. But it is, I think, incredibly overrated. There are plentiful human decision makers who are not transparent. We put our lives in the hands of our doctors. Um, and we do so because there are systems in place that allow us to do that. We don't have to have sophisticated medical knowledge um, to know that when we go to our doctor, that she is competent, that if she kills too many of her patients, that she will be struck off the register or that um, the drugs that she prescribes are ones that um, are, are safe and if they kill too many people that they won't be prescribed um, again. There are systems in place 
um, to allow that and without so we can put our trust in the system without actually having to to have much transparency into the decision making and understand and there's plentiful evidence actually that humans are, are very poor at explaining their decisions and uh, we're very good actually at inventing explanations post hoc um, to justify the uh, decisions that we made um, and so I can imagine there are plentiful settings, for example, ex example in, in medicine, where we will build systems that will be far superior than humans at making decisions that keep us alive and make us healthier, um, and that, that we won't be able to um, explain how they, how they work. But we have been careful in building the institutions and systems in place so that those systems are, are monitored uh, and um, are built in ways that we can put, uh, have complete faith in putting our lives in their hands. This brings us to the issue of responsibility, doesn't it? As between the various uh, entities that are acting in these situations, who should be responsible when things do go wrong? Should it be the programmer or the user of the AI? Or heaven forbid we should say the machine itself? How do we work out this new allocation of responsibility? This is an, another really important conversation. We need to get this one right because we are increasingly handing over decisions to machines um, and some of those decisions can have life-threatening consequences. And we see that um, in the discussion around driverless cars, that the, the car might be driving along and it may make a decision. Um, it may have to make a life or death decision. It turns a corner and there's someone stepped in the middle of the road and it's got to veer off the road, maybe kill the occupants of the car or kill the person who stepped into the road. Um, and so who will be held accountable for those sorts of decisions? Uh, one thing is clear, of course. And uh, the, the, the one thing that is not accountable is the machine. Machines are not conscious beings, not sentient beings. They, they, they can't be punished. Um, turning them off makes no, there's no consequence to them. Um, so the, the, and they don't have any legal identity either. So that we can't be holding machines accountable. So who, who are we holding accountable? How do we make sure um, that, that there are uh, suitable, suitable accountability so that, that the world is a better, safer place? Um, and I think this is, you know, the one area that, that AI really poses a new, fresh philosophical problem because we've never built anything in the past which has um, autonomy, which has the ability to act on its own. All the other devices that we built in the thing in the past have been our servants, have been just responding to our controls. But we now are now building things where, where, where they will be making decisions largely independent of the people who turn them on or the people who program them. And so that does pose, I think, um, both moral, legal and technical challenges that we need to address. Um, and there will be some settings, I think, where we will just decide that we shouldn't hand those decisions to machines, that we do ultimately, it's the, 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 for example, in the judicial system, I think the world is a better place because we do allow humans for all of their failings to make those final decisions. Um, and that if we try to hand some of those decisions to, to, for example, taking away someone's liberty, one of the most important decisions we make as a society, if we hand that sort of decision to a machine, I fear that the world we wake up in is again, the one that authors like um, are, that, uh, that Orwell and Huxley have warned us about, a, a world in which that I wouldn't want to wake up in, that I do at the end 
um, believe in the idea, the one that we've invested hundreds of years of our legal system into, that, that ultimately the most serious decisions are ones that are decided by a jury of our peers. Um, and that to try and hand over those very subtle, very difficult decisions to a machine um, would perhaps take us to a, a world in which I wouldn't like to be. It, I know there are also situations where we wouldn't just be talking about a machine taking away somebody's liberty, but potentially a machine taking away someone's life. And you've spoken very passionately about the potential of a third revolution in war and autonomous weapons. What is that revolution and what are those weapons and, and why do you care so much? Yes, I've become very much an, an, an accidental advocate in the sense that this, I think this is an, another area of autonomy, uh, autonomy in the battlefield, that we really do have to worry about. And actually, uh, this very week, as, as we're speaking in the United Nations in Geneva, they are debating this very topic. And I've, I've been privileged to, to have spoken um, in that forum half a dozen times over the last uh, five or six years, warning about the risk, warning about the way um, that technology, um, artificial intelligence in particular, is going to change the nature of how we fight war. And technologies have always changed how we fight war, uh, well, not always for the better. And we have in the past decided to regulate various technologies. We have regulated um, chemical warfare, biological warfare, nuclear warfare. And I think the idea of autonomous warfare is, again, one that, that we should think very seriously about. It would take us to a very dark place if we did, if we didn't. And that's a fear, a concern that not only I have, but thousands of my colleagues. And in 2011, I um, organized, helped organize an open letter to the United Nations that got a lot of attention, um, signed by thousands of my colleagues, warning about the risk, warning that there will be a start of an arms race. And unfortunately, that arms race has begun. We can see now in every theater in which war is fought in the air, on the sea, under the sea and on land, autonomous weapons being prototyped, being developed, and sadly now even being deployed. Uh, earlier this year on the Russian-Syria border, you saw autonomous drones being that have been developed by Turkey um, being put into, um, put, in, put into action. These autonomous drones use face recognition software to identify, track, and uh, decide to kill people on the ground. That's the same face recognition software that's going into your smartphone is now being repositioned um, to decide who to kill. And every, so every time you see that face recognition software make a mistake, think about the consequences of that when it's, um, when it's attached to an explosive drone that could be actually killing people um, in a hotspot like that. Um, and there are lots of there are lots of concerns that I have about about such a misuse of technology, technical concerns um, that the technology isn't ready uh, to take on such responsibilities, legal concerns uh, about how this contravenes the rules under which we fight war. There are uh, very strict rules um, uh, of international humanitarian law um, that govern. Um, the behaviors that are acceptable in, in warfare. Um, and these technologies would violate those rules, the rules of uh, proportionality and discrimination um, and, and, and accountability. Um, and, and, and then finally moral rules. I think it would take us to um, a very terrible place to actually hand those sorts of decisions over to machines, that warfare is a terrible thing um, and that it should be a matter of last resort. It's not something that we should hand over easily to machines. Um, and machines, um, as we discussed earlier, can't be held accountable for those decisions. Um, 
And I think, therefore, it's something that we should think very seriously about before we let, let this cat out of the bag, um, whether we should, um, as the UN is discussing this week, uh, look to regulate um, and, and make sure that these, these same technologies that are going to be saving lots of lives, making our roads much safer, are not ones that are used to take many lives, because ultimately these would be weapons of mass destruction. They would let, allow us to scale warfare in a way that any other weapons of mass destruction allow. And they would be the perfect weapons for terrorists to commit atrocities to be used against women and children in our towns and cities. And therefore, we should think very carefully about how we try and limit the misuses of technology in this way. Clearly, these are some of the most important issues of our time. And it's very encouraging that you've now been given the means to pursue this project of understanding how to build AI systems that humans can trust. Yeah, uh, it's great that the, the, um, I've received support to, to pursue it, uh, certainly the technical aspect of it, but I want to emphasize to finish that, that these are broad questions that don't just have technical answers. Um, they touch issues of sociology, of philosophy, um, of, of law, um, and they touch all of society, and therefore they're not um, decisions, they're not, they're not questions that should be answered only by people like myself. They're questions that the whole of society need to be considering, to be thinking about, well, what sort of world is it that we want it to be? And I think that's, if there's one positive thing that has come out of 2020, out of the global pandemic, out of all of the, of all of the problems, the challenges that we faced over the last uh, six months or so, it is the realization that we can get to reimagine society, that we can get to choose the future we want it to be. And the sorts of technologies that I uh, work on are ones that can help us realize those dreams. Toby, thanks so much for talking with us today and giving us your insights on some of these vitally important debates. Well, it's been a pleasure talking about these issues with you. The Trust Exercise podcast series is part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. To keep up to date with our chats, be sure to subscribe to the show and we'd love you to join the conversation by leaving a comment or review.